Hello, and welcome to Episode 77 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 12 years' experience in Brazil and China. For this episode, I spoke to Andrew Downey, a freelance journalist and author. Andrew is now based in Spain after more than three decades based in Latin America and still continues to travel to Brazil for work. I managed to catch him on a recent visit to Sao Paulo, so this is one of the rare episodes where I've recorded in person. Until about a year ago, we were colleagues at Reuters where he had worked on our sports desk since well before the Brazilian World Cup and Olympics. He was the guy who, when soccer legend Pele would have a health scare, you'd be asking your editor, do I need to write this up? And more often than not, Andrew would already have published a story about it. Andrew has subsequently left Reuters in Brazil and is now writing a biography about Pelé, who died last year. But there's a lot more to Andrew than sports. He'll tell you himself his story probably wouldn't be possible today. He left school at about 16 to take an apprenticeship as an electrical engineer. Despite this, he ends up stumbling into a career in journalism. In his first five years as a journalist, he ends up working for the New York Times in Haiti following the coup of democratically elected leader Aristide. After reporting in Haiti and Mexico, he moved to Brazil, where he'd spend a couple decades split between Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. Even when he's purportedly writing about sports, he's got his eye just as much on the bigger picture. As he'll tell it, his biography of Brazilian soccer star Socrates is more about agitating against the Brazilian dictatorship than it is about Socrates' on-field prowess. Now to hear it in his own words. Here's my conversation with Andrew Downey, a freelance journalist and author. warm up a little bit. Normally I have the person set the scene and tell us where they are physically and geographically. In this case, we're doing it in person, which uh, is a bit unusual. Most of them are recorded over Zoom. But I guess, yeah, just tell us where you are geographically and uh, the physical space around you and a little bit about what your last week has been like in terms of work. We are recording this at your house, and I am sitting opposite you in your front room uh, here in Sao Paulo. It's a lovely Sunday, and I have been here in Sao Paulo for the last five weeks, and I will be here for two weeks more. I am here to do research on a book I am writing about Pelé, famous football player, and also to do a story about the Amazon for the Economist 1843 magazine, although I don't know if that's actually going to happen now. But that's why I came to Brazil this time. So uh, then to really get into it, if you could start by telling us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if anything planted the seed of interest in journalism early on. I was born in Edinburgh, in Scotland. I grew up there all my life until I was 23, and when I left, I left school at 16, and I went to work in a factory. I did an apprenticeship as an electronic engineer. I hated it. I was terrible. I was the world's worst electronic engineer, (laughs) and I knew quite quickly that this wasn't something I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but this was in the early 1980s. This was Thatcher's Britain. There was record unemployment. And at the time, an apprenticeship was seen as a job for life. My dad had worked in a similar factory. And the employer at the time was the biggest private employer in in the city. 
uh, Scotland's capital. So it was seen as a, a, a sure thing. It was seen as something that you don't turn down on an, uh, an apprenticeship at Ferranti was the name of the company. So I took this job at 16. I hated school. I really hated school. So I couldn't wait to get out. And I took the job. I did the apprenticeship for four years and I went to work in as an estimator, which was estimating the price of contracts. It was mostly um, defence systems, working on radars, working on missile systems, all this kind of thing. But really I, what I was doing was I was adding up the cost of nuts and bolts that would go into all these systems. So it wasn't very challenging. And there came a time in about 1989 where I thought I've had enough of this, I need to do something different. So I went to, I decided I would go and travel and see Latin America. Lots of people at the time were, were going to Australia, were doing the Silk Road, they were bumming around Asia, you know, sitting on beaches in Vietnam and Cambodia and these kind of places. And I, I wanted to do something different. Latin America was more challenging, it was more dangerous, it was more remote, it was somewhere that people didn't tend to go and... You know, I was more adventurous, I think, and I wanted that kind of adventure. So I went to night school and I studied Spanish for a year because I wanted to have a base for when I arrived in Latin America. And my plan, <laughs> as ridiculous as it sounds now, my plan was I left my job in May of 1990. I went to Italy for a month to watch Scotland in the World Cup as a football fan. And then I came home, I spent a couple of weeks in Edinburgh and then I took a flight from London to New York in July. July 19th, actually. It's it's the anniversary almost. Okay. July 19th, 1990. And then on December 21st, 1990, I had a return flight. I bought a return flight from Rio de Janeiro to London. And my plan was to travel overland between London and Rio. Wow. I had no idea of the distances involved. <laughs> you know, in the years to come, I would laugh at my editors who would say things like, you know, go to Mexico, you're in Brazil, it's just next door. And <laughs> it was a bit like that. I had no idea how, how far it was between New York and, and Rio. I did this thing called a drive away, which was when you hire, someone else was relocating in the US and they would hire a company to take all their stuff from, in this case, it was New York to Phoenix and they had someone like me deliver their car for them. <laughs> so I drove the car across the US from New York to Phoenix. And then I hitched a ride from the border down to Guadalajara mm -hmm. to go bus to Mexico City. And I was going to spend I was going to spend a few months in Mexico City or a few weeks in Mexico City before going south. And then I got very lucky. I've always been very lucky in life. I, 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 I'm quite aware of this. <laughs> I've always happened. I've always think I've been in the right place at the right time, and I've always met the right person at the right time, and I've, I've just been lucky. And I wasn't getting a job. I tried to teach English. I'd taken an English language teaching English as an Eng as a second language course before I left Scotland to give me something to fall back on and earn some money as I went around Latin America. Mm -hmm. And I went into this last English school and I decided if I don't get a job here, then I'm going to go south. I'm going to go to Guatemala, Nicaragua, El Salvador, whatever. And I sat in this office waiting to be interviewed for this job. And I met this American guy who said, oh, you're British. You probably know all the guys at the British Embassy. And I said, not really. I don't know anybody here. And he said, oh, we go every Wednesday. The British Embassy have a, a 
party every Wednesday night and anyone could turn up. So he said, come with us, come with, the, come with us. I have some friends, my neighbour is British, we'll go along together. So I did. And I went along to the embassy that Wednesday night and I made a lot of friends really quickly. And these same people, the, this British friend, the guy that I met was actually the boyfriend of the LA Times correspondent. Okay. And they lived next door to this British photographer. So I became friends with them and I went to a party at their house like a week or so later. And I met this couple and the couple said to me, a couple of Americans, and they said to me, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm just you know here teaching English. And I said, what do you do? And they said, oh, we're journalists. We work at the Mexico City News. And I, and I said, oh, I've always fancied being a journalist. <laughs> and they said, come along to the paper tomorrow. We'll get you a job. And had you fancied being a journalist or were you just making things up? <laughs> no, I, I, there, there's two or three incidents from my, when I was really young that made me think about journalism. One, I was about, I was in primary three, so I would have been about seven years old. And I, I would read the newspapers, The Scotsman. And my primary school teacher told my mum or dad that one day they would see my name on the front of the Scotsman <laughs> because I was so interested in the newspapers. And then when I was about 15 or 16, we had career counselling and the teacher said to me, what do you like to do? Because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you like to do? I said, I like to watch football and I like to read the newspapers. And he said, maybe you should become a sports journalist, <laughs> um, which is quite prophetic. And then my first job was delivering newspapers and it was the only job I ever got fired for because I read <laughs> the newspapers rather than delivered them. So looking back, there's these little signs that I was interested in journalism, but I had no idea about how to go about being a journalist. I didn't stay at school long enough in order to go to university. It's a prerequisite now. It wasn't quite such a prerequisite then, but still it was important. And really my path into journalism is it's impossible now. It could never happen you know, meeting someone at a party and them inviting you to the paper the next again day to get a job. It's just <laughs> impossible. But as I said, I've been lucky. I was in the right place at the right time and I went to the newspaper the next again day and they got me a job editing the culture section, which was basically going through the culture wires and selecting stories. And then, you know, there's lots of dropouts, there was lots of typos and I would have to go through the stories and make them readable and grammatically correct, etc. And then they would put them in the newspaper the next again day. So that was my first experience of a newsroom, and I loved it. Was it a big operation, or what was it like? It was the Mexico City News. It's quite a historic publication in Mexico. It was an English-language publication. It was part of the Novedades group, and they had a newspaper every day. They had a, a new, young, enthusiastic editor from, from the U.S., a guy called Mike Zamba, what they used to do at the time, at the news, they would just they would hire people, anyone who came in off the street. But Samba came in and he was a journalist and he decided he wanted to make it more professional and like a proper newspaper. Sure. So he was hiring, you know, a bunch of kids who would come down from the US for a year. You know, I was one of the last kind of non-journalists that he hired. And I saw him an enormous debt of gratitude. And so there was a bunch of us. There must have been about, I'm guessing there was maybe a dozen reporters from all over the world there was an Iranian girl there was a an Argentine woman there was a bunch of Americans quite a few Brits Canadians Australians and we were all there together and we were all in our early 20s and we were all like in a foreign city sure learning the language it was fantastic it was you know the best time of my life everything was new everything was interesting and you know you can imagine me coming from Scotland 
<laughs> you know, just, you know, your horizons all of a sudden just open up enormously. So it was a fantastic time to be there. And, and I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I met at the news at that time. A lot of them still journalists, do you know? Yeah, a lot of them are still journalists and a lot of them have gone on to, you know, to great things. Let me think. Bill Schomburg is a is the writer's chief economics correspondent in London. He went all over the world. David Luno is now the uh, Wall Street Journal bureau chief in London. Eduardo Garcia and Elizabeth Malkin were a couple. Eduardo opened the first ever Bloomberg Bureau in Mexico City. Elizabeth was the New York Times correspondent for a long time. There was many, many more. Andrew Cawthorn. Okay, yeah. He was the writer's guy in East Africa. He was the writer's guy in Venezuela. He was all over. There was a real kind of close community of everybody. We're all kind of in the same boat. We weren't getting paid very much money, but we had a great time. Right, yeah. It sounds like a great place to get your start. It was. So you're mostly editing copy off the wire when you first start. Do you remember when you first started to write? Was that still at the the news? Yeah, I started on the 30th of October, 1990. And at the end of the year, they were looking for copy for year-enders. And I said, I was at the World Cup this year. Why don't I write a story about what it was like to be at the World Cup? They said, yeah, go ahead. So I wrote a story. It went in. Everybody seemed to like it. And they said, if you want to write more, then you can write more. And then I remember my second story was about Burns Night, Robert Burns, famous Scottish poet, and has a Burns Night all over the world, 25th of January. There was a big Burns ceremony in Mexico City. So I wrote all about that. And then I think my third story was I covered In Excess, had come to Mexico City, the, the band. Because okay. at that time, it was really rare for foreign bands to come to Latin America. These kind of bands would only ever go to the US and to Europe. They never really came to Latin America. So it was a big deal. So I covered the press conference and I went to the show and wrote about the show. And then things spiraled from there. They gave me a column in the sports section. But I was free to do different things. I, I wrote about different things. It's really, it was quite open and quite free. If you had ideas, they would take your ideas and they would listen to your ideas. And, you know, everybody pitched in and, did what they wanted really it was a fantastic experience it was a real steep learning curve but it really stood me in good stead for the future let's see so i mean how long did you stay at the news and what happens after that i was at the news for about a year and a half between a year a year and a half and then i, w I went on to upi which was kind of the natural next step for a lot of people who were at the news upi had a still had a active office in mexico city and I went to UPI where I was I was doing more editing than writing. I was doing a lot of translating from Spanish. We would take stories from around Latin America, mostly mostly Central America at the time, and Mexico. And we would translate them, put them into English, and they would go on the wire. Occasionally there'd be stories in Mexico City that we'd cover. And I did that until about the start of 1993, where again I got lucky the boss said to me, would you like to go to Haiti and be our correspondent in Haiti? And I said, yeah, of course. I mean, I knew nothing about Haiti. <laughs> Again, it was a great opportunity and it was an adventure. And so I said, yes, and I packed all my stuff. I had one cardboard box full of stuff and one rucksack full of clothes. And I went to Haiti and 
I arrived in Haiti on the 1st of March, 1993. And I really didn't know what hit me. <laughs> because Haiti is just so extreme. It's just, it's, everything's extreme about Haiti. And I got there on the first day and I I got in a cab and I said, take me to a hotel. And they took me to this hotel in the centre of town. And I checked into the hotel and it was getting night time. And I, I tried to switch the lights on and the lights wouldn't work. <laughs> I didn't really know what was going on. But I thought, okay, you know, it's cheap. This, you know, UPI had no money. I had no money. <laughs> so I went to bed and I got woken up with this, you know, a noise and all the lights came on about midnight. <laughs> the noise was the ceiling fan starting to, to switch on. And it was only then I realized that there was no electricity during the day. <laughs> there was only electricity at night. And that was the way it was in Haiti for the two years I was there. You would get electricity. In the good times, you would get electricity seven or eight hours a day from about midnight to seven or eight a.m. And in the bad times, you would get it for seven or eight hours a week. <laughs> and you had to make do. <laughs> that was my introduction to Haiti. And I went there for UPI and was a correspondent for UPI for a few months. And then I got a job at Reuters. Writers hired me as the Haiti stringer. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised that UPI, you say they didn't have a lot of money, that they had a correspondent in Haiti at all. Was, I mean, what was the situation like in Haiti at that time? I mean, I, I, things have only gotten worse and worse, I think. So um, did, were people interested in the politics of Haiti? Or, or Yeah, it was a big deal at the time because... My boss, Edwin Vidal, who was a Peruvian guy, who who was fantastic. I mean, I used to love Edwin. I don't know what happened to him. He was savvy enough to realize that Haiti was going to be a big story because the president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, had been overthrown in a coup in 1991. And Clinton and the Americans were kind of saber-rattling. They were wanting to put Aristide back in power. And so Edwin realized that they needed a correspondent there because there was going to be a lot of news. They did have a local guy who there who was sending stories. So I, I was kind of coming in and you know, taking over from the local guy who was a great help to me in spite of everything. So we, we knew, Edwin knew that Haiti was going to be a big story and it was a big story. In 1993, Clinton wanted to put Aristide back in power. They sent a troop ship down to the Haitian coast and then... Somalia happened. You remember the American bodies dragged through the streets, burned and all this? Yeah, yeah. And Clinton got cold feet. And I'll never forget the day that uh, there was a troop ship off the Haitian coast called the Harlan County. And I was in the Haitian parliament. Often I would just go down to the Haitian parliament and hang out <laughs> to see who was in their office and sure. just, you know, just talk to people. And the Haitian parliament was very close to the U.S. embassy. It was very close to the coast. And I just remember being in the parliament this morning. And all of a sudden, there was an eruption of noise. There was gunfire. There was cheering. There was all sorts of noise outside. And we ran outside. And you could see the, the USS Harlan County was turning around and was steaming away from uh. Haiti. <laughs> and it was people out in the streets firing their guns in the air and celebrating. Mm. And that brought things to an end. Because a lot of journalists had come into Haiti at the time thinking that the U.S. were actually going to come in, we're going to re restore Aristide. It had been a big story for three or four months that summer. And then that October, I think it was October, when Harlan County turned around, 
it became obvious that Clinton had got cold feet. So there was a down period of about six to nine months and then it all ramped up again. In the spring of 1994, the Clinton administration started making real noises about putting Aracid back again. And Haiti was the biggest story in the world for a lot in 1994. You know, there's a lot, there was stuff going on. I remember Waco happened, there was Mandela or other elections in South Africa. But in Haiti, it was the big story of the time. The great thing about Haiti for, for me being a journalist was that Haiti is such a, such a difficult place to live in. And it's only gotten worse. But it, even back then, it was a difficult place to live in because there was no electricity, because there was nowhere to spend your money, because there was real no kind of leisure. <laughs> it was one story. I mean, there wasn't a lot of other things to do. And being there was just just so difficult. The day-to-day stuff was so difficult. There was only about five or six journalists who were there full-time. There was, you know, me for writers. There was an AP guy who'd lived there a long time. There was Kathy Claritch, a great friend of mine, who worked for the Christian Science Monitor and Monitor Radio and a bunch of other places, and a guy called Harold Mass, who worked for the Miami Herald. And that was really about it. So when big news was, was threatening to break, like the summer of 93 and in the summer of 94, literally hundreds of journalists would come in. Literally hundreds of journalists. You know, all the networks came down. You know, Dan Rather was there and... Tom Brokaw and you know all these guys, Christian Amanpour, all these guys poured in, all the newspapers poured in, and we were kind of like mini celebrities because we'd been there the whole time and we had all the contacts <laughs> and all the all the knowledge. And again, I was in the right place at the right time, and a, a lot of these people that I met in that period, I'm, I'm still friends with today. I got quite lucky again. The New York Times correspondent hired me as his stringer, Howard French, who's yeah again who's still. You know, a great friend today. Yeah, Howard's a great journalist. I mean, I don't know him that well, but I think I exchanged emails with him when I was like a young student or something like that. Very nice guy. And he's probably one, well, he's without doubt one of the smartest guys I've ever met. You know, you talk about boxing and, you know, one minute and then talk about Asian politics the next and then talk about African art the next. He, he knew about everything. So that was a great helped me. Howard left in the summer of 94 and then Larry Rotor came in. Okay, yeah, the guy who wrote the book about Brazil that's sitting on my shelf. <laughs> and Larry was, I mean, Larry's a great friend today. Larry was a great help to me in, in Haiti and I was part of that in the New York Times of the team. They had Philip Diedrich and Gary Pierre-Pierre and a guy whose name Rick Bragg because he was a beautiful, beautiful writer. He left the Times under some under some odd circumstance, I can't remember exactly what happened to him, but he was a beautiful writer. And again, it was just a great place to be and great contacts to make and, and great friends to have. And I always remember my girlfriend at the time saying to me, you don't really know this yet, but this is only going to happen to you once in your life. <laughs> you know, a story like this where it's kind of your story, you know, I felt proprietary about it. And I didn't really know what she meant at the time, but now I understand completely. It was kind of my story. There was just so much going on. And it was just so exciting. And then, I don't know if you remember, the, Jimmy Carter came down, led a peace mission, and said to the Haitian generals, this was, this was a weekend, and he came down and said to the Haitian generals, if you don't give up, we're going to invade. Quite the peace mission. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, they tried to negotiate, and the Haitian generals said no, and then Carter eventually said, listen, Clinton has made up his mind. 
if you don't give up, then we're going to invade. And they actually, they, they said that these planes have left the US. They're on their way. They are on their way here to land and to unseat you guys and put Aristide back in power. And the Haitian military immediately, immediately gave up. And the planes turned around. This was a Sunday. The planes turned around on the Monday morning. They came back, not as an invading, but as a, what did they call it? It's called like the Immaculate Invasion, uh, one of the famous <laughs> books about it. So they came in and, and as a as a transitionary force to help the Arasid get back or mm-hmm. to put Arasid back in power. So the that took four weeks, and then I was in Haiti until Arasid came back in October nineteen ninety four, and I left in February nineteen ninety five. Two years was was a long a long time in Haiti. <laughs> two years, two jobs. Wow, yeah, that's a lot to happen in that amount of time. So where, where do you go from there? And was it your choice to leave or the story just cooled down or? The story or? cooled down and as I said, Haiti was, it was just a difficult place to live. Uh, two years was, was a long time. So um, my girlfriend at the time lived in Mexico City. I had lived in Mexico City, as, as you know, for two and a half years before. So it was a logical place to go back to. I had friends there. So I went back and I was the... It's basically the number two at the Houston Chronicle. They had the guy called Dudley Althouse. You know, the beloved Dudley Althouse, the saintly, the saintly <coughs> Dudley Althouse. Everyone loves Dudley. He was there, and Dudley was spending more and more time doing projects, long-term projects. So they needed somebody to cover the day-to-day news in Mexico City, or the day-to-day news in Mexico, because the Houston Chronicle, obviously, they have a great interest in the in the border and everything. So... That's mostly what I did. I was I was able to freelance for other people. I did a lot of work for the Toronto Globe and Mail, some stuff for the Scotsman, the Daily Telegraph, etc. But it was mostly the Houston Chronicle. And I spent another five years in Mexico City doing that. Four years. Four years until the end of 1999 when I came to Brazil. Gotcha. So uh, what were people interested in out of Mexico in those years? Was it already all immigration and drugs and those sorts of things, or what was the story like then? The story in Mexico was we did a bit of everything. The politics was always a big thing. At the time, you were just seeing the first, the drug gangs were starting to really make an impact. You had the murder of Luis Donaldo Colosio, who was the ruling pre-candidate for president. He was shot dead. That was an enormous story. There was another drug gang shot dead, the Cardinal of Guadalajara, which was another enormous story. There was always people going missing or people involved in corruption scandals. There was the Carlos Salinas de Gortari stuff with him and his brother. There was all that kind of politics and corruption going on. Drugs were always in the were, were more and more on the front page. And at the same time, there was always floods, there was always explosions, a firework factory exploding and killing 20 people. There was the the Pemex explosion in 1992 under a street in Guadalajara that no, it was a a, a, a gas leak. You know, a whole neighbourhood got blown to smithereens. So there was always this kind of stuff. Then there was, of course, there was Chiapas. You know, the uprising in Chiapas by the Zapatistas in 1994. So that was there and thereabouts as well. That was happening in, in the south. And then, of course, there was just all the 
I mean, Mexico is just, it's, there's just a lot of stories in Mexico, just, you know, kind of weird and wonderful stuff that happens. One of the, the best stories I wrote was about how Mexicans loved the Beatles. There was always Beatles bands, tribute bands to the Beatles everywhere you went. <laughs> and I remember hanging out with these bands that would play Beatles songs all the time. So there was all this cultural stuff. I mean, Mexico's really, really rich culturally. So there was all these kind of stories about culture and art and entertainment that was of interest. You know, it's Houston Chronicle. There's a huge, you know, the huge Latino population in, in Texas. It, it was always interesting. A lot of interest, yeah. Cool. And so what makes you go to Brazil then? Because, you know, Brazil, it's uh, Portuguese, not Spanish, not necessarily the natural move. How did that happen? Well, first of all, I had always the original plan oh, yeah. was to go to Rio. So <laughs> Rio was always kind of in the back of my mind and Brazil was always in the back of my mind for reasons that I can't really explain. And then Time Magazine had a Latin American edition at that time. And the guy who was in Brazil, was in Rio, they were leaving, it was a couple. He was leaving and the Time Magazine guy in Mexico, who was the head of the Latin American edition, said, listen, we're looking for somebody, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I basically said, yeah. I was I was looking for a new challenge. I wanted to learn a new language. I wanted to go somewhere new and do something different. I'd been in Mexico for seven of the previous nine years. So I just wanted a new start. I just wanted to do something different. In my head at that time, I, I had this romantic notion that this was really before the internet really had, had kind of destroyed journalism. I had this notion that I would, I would every five or six years, I would go to another country and learn another language and meet, make new friends and, you know, life would be great. But Brazil was, of course, my last move. But I came to Rio the end of 1999, stayed eight years in Rio and then moved to Sao, Sao Paulo and spent 12 years in Sao Paulo. So that's the next 20 years, yeah, okay. So, yeah, tell me about when you first arrived in Rio then, you know, presumably <clears throat> not knowing Portuguese and, you know, never having been in the country before. Um, how did you find it on arrival? Was it like Mexico all over again the first time or, or how, how was it different? Um, it was very different. It was more different than I imagined. The language thing is obviously massive. So many people, probably myself included at the time, thought Spanish and Portuguese were much more closer than they actually are. And if you read them and write them, then, yeah, they look, they look quite similar. But when you're actually speaking them, it's very different, as you know. You have to learn a whole new palette of sounds when you speak Portuguese. These sounds don't exist in Spanish, so it takes you a long time to, to get that down. And the general rule is that Brazilians will understand people speaking Spanish, but people speaking Spanish won't understand Portuguese. Yeah, I hear lots of people saying, oh yeah, I come from Mexico, I, I understand what you're saying. I always think, no, you don't really understand half of what you think you understand, because <laughs> it's, it's quite different. But I got my head around Portuguese eventually. The big thing, the big differences as journalists was that Brazil was so much more open, so much easier. First of all, because Brazilians are just an open kind of, it's an, it's an open society. People are open books, people talk, people laugh, people make friends easily. Mm -hmm. It was quite different from Mexico where as an outsider, you're always going to be an outsider. You can make Mexican friends and we all had Mexican friends and, you know, friends and family and stuff, but it's not quite the same. 
it's also the fact that you have there was a much bigger middle class in Brazil. It just makes it easier to make friends. And journalistically, when you made a when you called somebody in Brazil, they would call you back. In Mexico, no one ever called you back, <laughs> especially governments, you know, NGOs, anything official. No one ever, 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 ever called you back. <laughs> in Brazil, people would get in touch. And there was also the, the one, I remember doing a, one of my first stories, you know, when you come to a new country, you, there were certain things that hit you. And one of the things that hit me was how bad the driving was and how dangerous it was. You know, you're always seeing people getting killed and you're always seeing buses driving off bridges and you're always like stepping off the curb and almost dying and you know I checked out the, the the number of road deaths and it was like astronomical and there was actually a society an association of journalists who deal with road uh, road injuries or motor injuries vehicular wow. injuries injuries and I remember just looking at this and thinking wow there's an association for everything in Brazil and there kind of is <laughs> So you always had somebody you could go to. Again, this was before press officers really, you know, got their dirty claws into into the business. So you could just call up the association and you would find somebody there and then and you'd talk and it was and it was great. So that was a big difference and that really made being a journalist like a hundred times easier and, and a lot more enjoyable as well. Yeah, and that certainly makes up for yeah, any learning curve on the language at first. I mean, I also, I mean, I showed up and didn't speak Portuguese well at all. I had barely taken any lessons and I was always surprised how people would be willing to sit down and talk to me, even though I barely understood what they were saying half the time. Yeah. But figured it out. And, and it's also worth saying, I mean, white privilege wasn't, wasn't a thing back then that we, that we talked about. But yeah, I mean, when you're a white guy coming from Europe to Brazil, you're treated very well. You're welcome with open arms. It's kind of... Um, there's a certain cachet to it and again we were very lucky I was very lucky to be a beneficiary of that what precipitates the move to Sao Paulo from Rio again there was a woman involved uh, um, there's a pattern emerging here <laughs> I was going out with a girl from Sao Paulo and I wanted to be closer to her but I really I was tired of Rio Rio is a magical city. It really is an, a magical city. And I would say to anybody, if you have the time and the money and you can get to Rio for a couple of weeks on holiday, go to Rio. It really is a spectacular city. You have so much fun. It's a liberating city. I call it the city of the eternal adolescent. A cidade do eterno adolescente. Where everyone they dress like their teenagers, they talk like their teenagers, <laughs> they live like their teenagers. And... When you first get there, especially after being in a quite a, a very formal city like Mexico City, it's really liberating to be able to you know walk along the beach in shorts, to go anywhere in shorts. Really, I have, I have this really clear memory as one of my friends from from the Mexico City News. He came to Brazil, and he wrote me a letter back in the days where we would write letters to each other. He spoke Portuguese, and he wrote a letter to me one time saying. And he was talking about how he had been to this carnival event and he had been to a football match in the afternoon and a carnival event at night. And he said, I still keep having to pinch myself. I can't believe I live in a country where like the four most important things are, or the three most important things are football and beach and beer. <laughs> and he, he was saying it, you know, semi half jokingly, but it was also half serious. Right. 
and I'll never forget that and thinking, wow, this is the kind of this is the kind of city I'd like to see, and that is real. But th- there comes a point where you get bored of it. You know, you want something more serious. And I've always been a guy who kind of likes cities. I've always been an urban person. Sure. And Sao Paulo is just a lot more urban. It's a proper city. It's a serious city. It's 20 million people. It's it's ugly as sin. It's really, <laughs> it's horribly ugly. But it has that dynamism that Rio didn't have, that few cities have. Yeah. And so I wanted to come to Sao Paulo and I, and I never really, never really regretted it. I, I mean, I love Sao Paulo. There's just so much going on. It's fascinating. I love Sao Paulo too. Yeah, I came from Brasilia and yeah, there's just, yeah, a lot more going on. They have everything here. I mean, the one thing, the one big difference is the whole kind of favela culture in Rio. That's a lot more, you know, a lot more stuff I think comes from the favelas in Rio. Music and culture and art than in Sao Paulo. That's one of the big differences I see. But Sao Paulo is it's so much richer. It's so much more organized. It's so much more first world right. than Rio. Especially in the last few years. I mean, Rio has gone downhill the last few years. So has Sao Paulo. But the difference between the, the two is still quite significant, I think. Right. Yeah, no, it is. It is. I mean, Sao Paulo economy keeps growing and Rio keeps shrinking and kind of says it all. Is it during this period you get more into sports journalism or when does that happen? I never, ever wanted to be a sports journalist, really. Again, I I remember working at the Mexico City News. And I remember, you know, I was doing this column about sports. And I remember walking into a meeting once. And it was in the finance office. And I just walked in because friends were there. And there was an American guy there. And they were talking about finance. And I walked in and he kind of stopped and went, what about Real Madrid, eh? (laughs) And it was like he thought that I was a sports guy. I couldn't talk about anything else other than sports. Kind of that kind of jock American thing. And I remember being really taken by this, being really kind of offended. <laughs> and it kind of put me off doing sports reporting for a long time because I always thought that writing about politics or culture or the environment or anything else was kind of more important, you know, in inverted commas. And then I got into sports in the... In about 2010, 2011, 2012, because, well, for two reasons, really. The main reason was that Brazil was gearing up to host the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics in 2016, so there was call for these kind of stories. Right. But also, this was right in the period after the financial crisis, and it was right at that moment where newspapers were falling apart financially. And so it was harder and harder to make a living. I remember the FT had a thing called Beyond Bricks. It was like a blog where they would write 300, 400 word stories about, you know, off news related stuff. And sometimes news related stuff, stuff that mostly didn't get in the newspaper, but it was about the, mainly the, bricks, the brick economies. And I would write a lot of stuff for them. And I remember them saying to me at one point, can you bash out 300 words or 400 words about Oi's takeover of Telefonic or something like this. Oi were bought by Teleitalia. I can't remember the details. And I said to them, you know, many words do you want? How much? They said, oh, 300 words, $50. And I said, listen, I, I don't know enough about this to bash out 300 words. You know, I'll need to do proper reporting. Whereas if I was writing about sport or I was writing about politics or I was writing about 
the environment, I could probably bash out 300 words because I have half of it in my head. Right. Once you've got, you know, a couple of quotes from somebody, once you've got the actual hard news or press release or whatever, then it's easy enough to do. But doing those kind of stories, those kind of business stories for $50, I just thought, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it any longer. And I stopped doing it. And there was a few other places that were, it was a similar kind of situation. You know, you're getting paid $150 $200 for a story that would, that might take you a week to do, a feature, even a news story. You know, $150 a day is not a lot of money. And at the time, because Brazil was on the up, because of the commodities boom, because of the pre-salt oil boom, because of the Olympics, because of the World Cup, it was really, really expensive. It's become more and more expensive mm. to live in Brazil. And so it was a real struggle to make ends meet. And writers at the time, they said, you know, we'd like you to start writing about sports and preparing us for the for the World Cup and the Olympics. And they were paying a decent rate at the time. And so I said, yeah. And that's how I got into writing about sports again. And uh, was that full-time or how did that work? The first couple of years, it was just on a per-story basis. But after that, it was I was on call full-time, yeah. They... You know, whenever anything happened, you know, the Chapecoense disaster, for example, oh, yeah. I get a phone call at four o'clock in the morning, jump on this story, you know, a big transfer or, a, you know, someone being killed, building the stadiums, you know, I would get the email saying, can you do this? I want you to do this. Go to this press conference with Pelé tomorrow. Go to this press conference with the IOC tomorrow. It was essentially on call for, for all the big news. And how was it covering, I guess, we'll take them in order. The It was the World Cup first and then the Olympics. To be honest, it was disappointing because <laughs> the way writers did it is that you were stuck in one city. So they brought in a lot of people. They'd fly two people in to Porto Alegre who would cover all the games in Porto Alegre. They'd have two people in Fortaleza who would do all the games in Fortaleza, two guys in Recife, and I was in Sao Paulo. And... I had been covering the story, not on my own, but I had been, you know, monitoring what was going on all, all over the country, preparing stories about all over the country. And then when the actual event happened, I was stuck in Sao Paulo, doing only what was happening in Sao Paulo. So it was a bit of a disappointment. And, you know, I'm not going to get into this in great detail but you know the people who were running the writer sports desk the same people who run the writer sports desk i mean they were not particularly nice people they weren't they weren't they weren't nice to work for and it was not a great environment it was not a pleasurable experience and even back then even even back then yeah i mean there was i mean i know somebody who complained about them back in 2008 <laughs> so it's a long-term thing and the the bosses have just, they, I mean, they turned a blind eye. They didn't want to know. And so same same deal for both the World Cup and the Olympics? You were stuck in Sao Paulo? It was slightly different in that they would have, the Olympics, they got individuals to cover individual sports. So they would bring in somebody from, I don't know, you know, a correspondent who, you know, the, the, the ex-writer's boss in Brazil who was then in, I don't know what country, would, they would bring him in and he would he would be allocated the sport. So he would do, say, rowing. Or they'd bring someone in from from Argentina or from China or from wherever, and they would be allocated the sports. Everyone got a sport that they, that they were supposed to cover. And there was a little bit of crossover. Occasionally you would have like a few hours and you would say, I've noticed this, can I go and do a feature on this? And you would 
you know, they would take it on its merits. And I was, I was allocated soccer, which was the hardest of them all because, first of all, there's two games on a, or what, there was be, be two games on a Monday for the men's tournament, two games on a Tuesday for the women's tournament, a rest day. Sorry, it might even be more than that. It might even be four games in a day. So you were you were starting very early. You were the, you were the first in the office. You were the last out of the office, and you were doing it nonstop. And the soccer tournament starts before the actual Olympics. So it was it was hard work, and I'm 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 not complaining. It. I love to do it, but it was very hard work. It was kind of nonstop, and I had the great pleasure of being in the Maracanã Stadium when Brazil won the gold medal for the first time. Oh wow! Brazil had won every. World Cup for football. That was, you know, because you have, you don't just have the main World Cup and men's football anyway. You don't just have the the senior World Cup. You have the under seventeen, and you have beach football, and you have futsal, and you have sub, you know, under twenties. And Brazil had won them all except for the Olympics, and finally they won it at the Maracanã in front of a hundred thousand people, almost you know, on penalties. Dramatic Neymar scoring in the last kick of the game. That's a memory that will always will always be with me. Yeah. Wow. Cool. And the Olympics happen. And then, I mean, you stay on with Reuters Sports for several more years till not that long ago. And I'm guessing it's this in this period when you wrote your book, your um, first book. And uh, I know the book. I'm sure you could talk an hour about the process of doing that. Is there anything you want to say about the book or just tell us a little bit about how it happened? I guess the short version. <laughs> The short version is that after the the World Cup ended in sorry after the Olympics ended in 2016 in August 2016, I was looking for a project because really from about 2013 or 2012 to 20, 2016, my life had been taken up kind of full time with doing all this preparation stories about Brazil getting ready for the World Cup and the Olympics. So then. I had a little bit more time on my hands and I decided that I would write this book. I had always I had always admired Socrates, who was he was the captain of the Brazil team at the nineteen eighty two World Cup, which is a famous team. They're famous as one of the greatest teams never to win the World Cup. They lost in this historic game where they only needed to draw and of course they lost three two in a real dramatic game in, in Spain. The reason I wrote the biography of him was because he went far beyond the boundaries of football. He was a political activist. He was a social activist. He was a guy who got involved in all sorts of art and culture. He had so many strings to his bow. And principally, he started a thing called Corinthians Democracy, which was a player power movement inside Corinthians, which is one of Brazil's biggest clubs. And he organized the players so that they would vote on everything involved in the club. So for the first time, players had a say in what was going on. This came at a time where Brazil was moving away from the dictatorship. The dictatorship ended in 1985. This was in 1981 and 82, So Socrates was a major figure in pushing the generals to end the dictatorship. As I say in the book, people didn't listen to the Brazilian president before he went to Washington but everyone listened to the captain of the Brazil team before he went to the World Cup. <laughs> so they would ask Socrates a question about, you know, who's going to play in the next game, and he would answer, and then he'd go off and talk for half an hour about, you know, the need for education or the need for you know, affordable housing or why the dictatorship was at an end. 
all these layers were much more important to me and much more interesting to me than the actual football. How long did that book take you to, to write? About between a year and a half and two years. It was after the World Cup that I started to have a little bit more time. I did this. I started after the World Cup at the end of 2014, 20, the beginning of 2015. And essentially I was doing my day job for writers and then I would work at night and at weekends I was doing the book. And I delivered the book just before the Olympics started. Oh, wow. That's right, yeah, just before the Olympics Busy started. Busy period, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how, I mean, how has reaction been? I'm, I'm just curious because it's a book about, you know, a Brazilian footballer and he's a huge deal in Brazil. But I am curious, like, if football fans around the world, like, picked up this book or, or what was the audience for it? Yeah, uh, it's been more of a success outside Brazil than inside Brazil because Socrates okay. was, he was such an iconic player. Because he had this leftist philosophy, you know, he was admired and revered all around the world by the certain cohort who saw him as, as an idol. And added to that was the fact that, he, you know, he was a great player. He played for this unforgettable team and he was the doctor. You know, he studied medicine and qualified as a doctor and he, he smoked and drank to excess. He died of consequences of cirrhosis of the liver, drinking too much. So he was a real, a real iconic figure. And the book was translated into French, Italian, Polish, Turkish and the last language to be translated into was Portuguese. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. My wife has an Instagram channel or an Instagram handle where she collates pictures of Socrates from around the world. We have stickers. We have little stickers that we put up around the world and give to friends and whenever, and anyone. And so we've got, you know, a Socrates sticker in like Berlin, a Socrates sticker in France, Socrates sticker... But there's also lots of people who send in pictures of lots of people have Socrates tattoos. Oh, wow. You know, one guy got his Socrates number eight tattooed on his back as though his back was a shirt. <laughs> but there's all these great pictures that show how, how, how people cared, how deeply people cared about Socrates. And I think part of that is also that you don't have very many football players now who stand for anything. You know, you've got Messi taking money from Saudi Arabia You've got Guardiola and all these, you know, people taking money from from the Middle East. You now have Cristiano Ronaldo taking, you know, he's now went to Saudi Arabia. You had the World Cup in Qatar. You know, you have clubs owned by Saudi Arabia. You have clubs owned by American billionaires. You have clubs owned by Russian billionaires. Footballers don't stand for anything other than money. And you had Socrates, who was the opposite of this. He put politics before his career. He, he famously said, he famously stood up in front of an audience of a million people in Sao Paulo and said, if the Brazilian Congress votes to allow democratic elections, I will stay in Brazil and help with the transition to democracy. And this was a time when he was getting all these big money offers from Italy. You know, he, his financial security would have been assured. And he put that in check. And it turned out the, the military Congress did not allow direct elections. They allowed elections only by Congress, not by an individual ballot. And so Socrates said, okay, you voted against me, you don't want this. And he went to Italy and played football in Italy for a year. But that was the kind of thing that he would do. He was, you know, these iconic gestures. And to see someone like him stand up for stuff, I think, I think that's more and more rare. And I think that's why he's such a revered figure. Yeah, I'm curious, I mean, did you meet him at any point? No. The book came about because 
I translated a book which was a biography of Garincha, who is one of Brazil's best-known players, who was also you know, a completely iconic figure. He was almost a cripple. His one leg was bent outwards and the other leg was bent inwards. He had this, you know, these kind of weird legs. He won two World Cups. He was also an alcoholic. He married a famous samba singer. When this was like, a, like a, an enormous scandal at the time. He died early. He died, he was only, I think, 50, 51 years old. And Rui Castro, great Brazilian biographer, wrote his biography and I translated it into English. And shortly afterwards, the same publisher said, would you like to translate another biography or a memoir of Socrates? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And I translated it into English, but it wasn't really ready for publication. So I said, why don't I talk to Socrates? Why don't I get more information from him? And then we'll put that into the book and we'll, we'll make it a kind of different book. And I called Socrates and he said, yeah, 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 let's do it. But he was famously disorganized <laughs> and he wasn't able to get the contract right and he wasn't able to organize himself and it never happened. And then, you know, sadly he died in 2011, so it never came to fruition. But I always had, I, I, because I had read the memoir, I knew some of the other stories in his life. I knew this was a big life. I knew this was a story that needed to be told. And then eventually I just thought, yeah, why don't I just do it myself? Very cool. And then, I mean, just to kind of bring us up to present, you left Reuters about a year ago. And what have you been up to since then? Well, the last six months of 2022 were spent in Brazil. I was mostly working for The Guardian. I actually came to Brazil with my wife to see her family on June the 5th last year. And the day we arrived, I got a message from my friend John Watts, a Guardian correspondent, Guardian environmental correspondent, saying that Dom, our friend Dom Phillips had gone missing in the Amazon. And the Guardian correspondent here, Tom Phillips, asked me if I would jump in and help. And I did, and I spent most of the next two or three months working on the Dom and Bruno story, which was a unique story for me and for a lot of my friends and colleagues because it was a not just a story that we did as foreign correspondents, it was a story that was personal because we all knew Dom pretty well. Dom was a good friend of mine. So I did that for two or three months, mostly for The Guardian, a few other people. And then, you know, that went well. The Guardian asked if I would also work doing election coverage. So the Lula election last year and, you know, we got to see the back of Bolsonaro, thankfully. So that was you know, September, October, the transition through to December. That kept me busy for most of last year. And this year I've been working mostly on my book. I am writing a biography of Pelé, the famous footballer who died on the end of last year. So that's mostly why I'm in Brazil right now, is to do research for the book, which will come out in 2026 for Viking Penguin. Oh, wow. That's a big imprint. How did that come about? I mean, Pele died, and I mean, did you see that as your moment? And you came with the idea, or did somebody come to you and said, Pele died, and no, people want a biography? No, I had been working on the biography for a long time. Pele wrote four autobiographies, but they don't cover a lot of the real thorny issues. It's not even that they don't cover the thorny issues, it's... I feel they lack a lot of the context about why Pelly was the way he was. He was often criticised for his positions on race and his positions on the dictatorship. 
and I'd like to get into a lot of these issues and explain why why he never took more of a position on racism, why he supported the dictatorship. You know, his business affairs were notorious. He lost a lot of money on more than one occasion. And the background to all this is, it's not so much a biography just about Pelé, it's, all, it's about the people around him as well. There's so many interesting people. You know, he spanned this period where he won the World Cup for the first time as a 17-year-old in 1958. And in 1958, people didn't really know where Brazil was. <laughs> Most people couldn't point to Brazil on a map in 1958. But by 1970, Brazil had won the World Cup for the third time in 12 years. Everybody knew Brazil as the, the country of football. And that was largely down to Pelé. So he put Brazil on the map. And so a lot of it is about the people that helped him do that and the period in which he came to prominence. And then, of course, after that, he went to the New York Cosmos. And you can see a lot of the parallels with that with Messi going to Inter Miami right now. Pelé did it first. He went to Cosmos and you know, got this big, enormous contract and focused attention on soccer in the US. And then after that, his life was... You know, he was never out of the public eye. He was always involved, whether it was because of his wife's or girlfriends, or it was because of, you know, his son, or it was because of his business interests, or, you know, he was always such a beloved figure. And there's just a lot of stories that I think, you know, need to be told that I'd like to tell. Gotcha. And did the book deal come after he died? I thought that was more recent, or have you been... Well, I had been researching the book for and writing parts of it for about three years. I didn't want to finish a proposal because I knew that when the proposal went to publishers, then things would get real. I would have to, I would have a deadline and I would have to really start working on it more fully. And I wanted to avoid that as long as he was still alive. And then when it became clear that his health was failing, put the proposal together quickly. And it was with publishers before he died. And yeah, we got the signed the book deal at the start of this year. Just out of curiosity, had you met Pele? And uh, another qu related question, did he know you were working on a biography about him? I met him, I interviewed him a few times. He was the most charismatic character, that, you know, one of the most charismatic people I've ever met. I remember being in his office in about 2002 and him saying my name. And it's, you know how sometimes when you think, you know, when the, when the world kind of stops, you know, you, you, know <laughs> the, you feel the world stops for a split second. I kind of felt that when Pele said my name. <laughs> so I really remember that. But the last few years, you know, he was quite ill. He had lots of problems, mobility issues, you know, and then the pandemic, of course, he never really did very many interviews. He never did very much. He was stuck at home. So, yeah, I mean, he didn't know I was working on a, on a book about him. Uh, never, you know, it was the period where he wasn't really engaging much with the press, unfortunately. Sure. And, yeah, I mean, in many respects, it makes sense to... Uh, he was already at an age that it makes sense to know what the end is, know, before you write the book yeah well very cool looking forward to that are you able to share publicly like what the timeline is when you expect that book to be released i have to deliver by august 2025 when it was time to come out before the next world cup which will be held in mexico the u.s and canada makes sense so we'll, we'll skip the section about stories because we talked extensively about your books so we'll head right into the lightning round, which is faster paced questions than telling the story of your whole life. But feel free to answer at whatever length you like, sh short or long. Uh, do you feel ready? Yes. So the first question is about a publication that 
covers your beat essentially that you think does a particularly good job that you would just like to shout out. So I guess, you know, you've been covering sports for years now. Is there any particular sports publication you like or anybody who covers Brazil sports well? I think the main thing is that no one really covers Brazil sports in English <laughs> in any kind of great depth. One guy I really think is really great is Tariq Panja, who writes about sports business for the New York Times. He used to live here, and he does a fantastic job of writing about you know the shenanigans by owners and directors and players all around the world. So I'm a big fan of Tariq's work. Okay. That's a good one. Do you know, I mean, I know there's all this business with them shutting down their sports section, but sports business is kind of adjacent. Do you know if he's I, continuing I, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I sent him a message and just said, you know, good luck. I hope everything works out. But, you know, it's not possible that they're going to let a guy like Tariq go. He's just, you know, the best at what he does. The thing about Tariq, and there's a few other guys at the New York Times, what they do compared to the athletic is that these guys cover sports whereas the Athletic just cover clubs. And that's a huge difference for me because Tariq and like Rory Smith writes about football and you know Andrew Das and a few other guys. They'll be writing a, a much broader story about a trend or something, whereas if you're the Athletic, it's basically one guy covers one club and it's everything involved to that club. And if you don't follow that club or if your club is a smaller club or your league is a smaller league, you don't get any attention at all. It's it's indicative of or it's symbolic of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. It's it's that kind of polarization. Rather than cover one sector, they cover one club. Yeah, you know I subscribed to the Athletic for a little while for a year, and now it's included in the New York Times subscription, so I get it. But it is kind of like unless it's a team I follow very closely, it, you know, there's nothing to read. I don't see the big picture stories that. When it's something I don't follow closely, like, yeah, I don't want that. It's, uh, yeah. There's a lot of, you know, 4,000 words about so-and-so's transfer from X club to Y club. Yeah. And if you yeah. don't follow the club, then, you know, it's, it's, it's very well done. It's, I mean, these guys have great sources and they, they really know the club inside out. Right. But it's really for hardcore fans of clubs rather than hardcore fans of the game. And that's the way sport's gone. That's the way sports going. As people support a club and a player rather than than the actual sport in itself any 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 longer, sadly. And then the next question is similar, but it's a journalistic publication that you look at more for fun or just for enjoyment that doesn't necessarily have to do with your job. Yeah, um, lots of things. Um, I subscribe to the New Yorker, the magazine. Loads of podcasts. Lots of them related to journalism. If you shout out a couple, just in. Um, I like Always Take Notes, which is a UK publication. They used to interview just journalists. It's kind of not quite so good. They're now interviewing literary editors and literary agents. And it's got away from the core that was that was really enjoyable. But the archive was a lot of really great stuff. I listened to Unofficial Partner podcast which is about the business of sports, which is always really interesting. And there's also a guy called Tommy Tomlinson who has a Substack. I'm getting into Substacks. Do you do, do you read much Substacks? Uh, there's one I like to read, but I, I haven't gotten that deep into it now. 
I mean, it's like athletic, you know, talking about how compartmentalized things get. But yeah, yeah. who who is uh, Tommy Tomlinson? Tommy Tomlinson is, um, I just came across him by chance. He's a writer in the south of the US, Charlotte, I think. And he writes about the south, has a podcast about the south, and he has a Substack every week where he has 10 recommendations for videos and stories to read, mostly. And it's always quite interesting, and he's a very nice writer. Same, Karim Abdul-Jabbar. You know, his Substack is very good. He's a beautiful writer as oh, well. Oh, yeah. There was one of his pieces that blew up recently that I did read. Okay, those are some good ones. And then the next question is even more specific. What's the best journalistic article piece? Again, it can be in whatever medium that you've read lately or consumed lately, rather. I've read a few pieces. I went back in time and I read long pieces by two pieces by Wright Thompson, who's a Mm. sports writer for ESPN or I think it's ESPN, maybe Sports Illustrated. And he's brilliant. He has he gets great access and he's really, really brilliant. I mean, he he did a piece about Joe Montana and he obviously spent loads of time with Joe Montana. He did a piece about Tiger Woods and he spent months with Tiger Woods following Tiger Woods. Michael Jordan, he did a piece where he was, he was hanging out with Michael Jordan in his house and it's really, it's beautifully done, really rich detail. That's always, that's always really great. And when I was going through all this old stuff, I read some stories by the guy who was the ghostwriter for Prince Harry, who used to work for the LA Times. I can't remember his name. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. But he, there's a few stories, one about a small town in the bend of a river in, I think, Alabama, and another piece about an old boxer that he counts, encounters homeless in, in LA that were fantastic. So you can get all this stuff on, online. Sure. Those were, the last couple were both for the LA Times. I think so, yeah, but they were they were a long time ago. They might have been 20 years ago. Okay. But you can still find them online. Okay, yeah, through like longform.org and stuff like that, I Something imagine. Something like that, yeah. Somebody must have them. Okay, those are good. And then is there any particular subject matter that you geek out about that is not related to your job? I'm a keen chess player. Oh, wow, I didn't know. I'm a bad keen chess player. <laughs> but I play I have I use chess dot com and I play I mean I'm probably playing ten people any any single time. Huh. So that's you know, when I s when I look at my phone and, and phone usage it's usually Gmail and Twitter and chess. These are like the three things that take up most of my time. So I'm playing chess for an hour and a half every day. <laughs> <laughs> so I really enjoy that and unfortunately I just don't seem to get any better because you have to study. <laughs> you really have to study and my memory isn't good enough yeah I like chessmen I was a teenager maybe but I, I don't know I just didn't have the patience for it to stick with it to get any better the next question is if you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead who would it be and why it's hard to choose one person right if I was younger I would like to go to the Ukraine and do some proper war reporting I'd love to do that Somebody like, I don't know, John Lee Anderson, the New Yorker, who gets to, to go and spend two or three months hanging out with Lula or hanging out with Boric in Chile or just going to Haiti and hanging out and, you know, just being able to spend time and and budget's probably not an issue. Time isn't an issue. Space isn't an issue. And that's, I suppose, what we all want as journalists, right? Yeah, for sure. Slow journalism. I mean, I've got loads of respect for a, for a bunch of people. The problem with journalism these days is that it's become a 24-hour-a-day 
if you want to be good, it's it's a twenty four hour a day venture. When I went to London, I remember speaking to people, and people say, "You could do this. You could, you know, do a job like the, these guys are doing, covering sports." And I looked at what they were doing, and they were—I mean, these guys are basically working twenty-four hours a day. You know, I'm that, I'm old enough now that that's not what I want with my life. I don't want to be involved doing this twenty-four hours a day because the rewards are not sufficient any longer—not just financially, but journalistically. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it any longer. Why is that? I understand financially, but journalistically, what what makes you say that? Because, you know, when I was coming up, when I was when I was younger. If you worked 24 hours a day and you did a brilliant job and you, you, know, you really excelled, then you knew that you would go somewhere. And I don't think that's necessarily the case any longer. I think you can devote yourself 24 hours a day to your beat and be very good. Where are you going to go? There's, I mean, there's the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and there's two or three or four or five publications at the very top. But that's it now. Yeah. Back, you know, 20 years ago... There was, you know, there was Houston Chronicle and there was Time Magazine and there was, you know, the St. Pete Times and there was all these, there was a, there was a hundred newspapers that had lots of people covering lots of beats and, you know, that's just not the case any longer. So the, the, the pool of opportunities is just so much smaller. Yeah, no, over time, I will say for myself, like, the more time goes on, the shorter and shorter the list of places I would leave Reuters to go gets to now where it's like, maybe two or three places that I could see even wanting to leave for. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot different. Yeah. Depressing. Yeah. The next one is what is one thing most people don't know about you? Probably that I've come to hate football. (laughs) People always ask me, you know, again, I still have that thing where you go in the room and people will say, ah, oh, here's Andrew. He likes football. We'll talk about football. God, I really don't want to know. (laughs) <laughs> I'm tired of it it's just so become so grubby so corrupt so so far from what I used to love I just don't I have no interest in it any longer I mean yeah I've heard that from other sports reporters too like some people say oh if you love sports don't become a sports reporter because you'll end up hating it yeah I don't think it's because I became a sports reporter I just think it's because it's changed so much It's be- it used to be sport and 20% business and now it's 20% sport and 80% business and you know the whole lack of competition is just you know if there's no competition any longer then what's the point and in too many football leagues for example that's that's the case so again it's it's, as we spoke about earlier it's the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer and you know that's that's I just don't see the point the next is what is your most embarrassing journalism related story if you have one so something that happened in the course of your work yeah there's two I can think of off the top of my head the first was in Haiti where I had left Haiti in 93 but René Preval was elected in 1995 I think and I went back and I had I spoke a little bit Creole but not really very much and I wanted to ask him, the story was that he was a bus driver. He had been a bus driver or a taxi driver, I think. And I wanted to ask him if I was a taxi driver. <laughs> and he got really upset. And I was trying to explain myself. And I was standing at the press conference, pretending to drive a car, going, pointing to him, going, you, drive a car, taxi. And everyone was kind of looking at me. I thought I was a complete <laughs> lunatic. And he refused to answer the question. And oh, wow. It was really embarrassing. Um <laughs> And there's another kind of odd situation where I went to interview a guy called Efrain Rios Mont, 
who was the president of Guatemala. He was a military dictator. He was involved in killing tens of thousands of indigenous people. And he left power and then he was trying to get back into power. And I went to Guatemala to interview him. And he was, you know, you're coming face to face with this with a killer, essentially. And I had a long list of questions. And I went into his office and he said, you've got seven minutes. Oh, wow. So I raced through the questions. <laughs> and when we were finished, he looked at me and went, okay, you've got another two minutes. <laughs> and I had finished all my questions. <laughs> so I tried to, you know, try to, I can't even remember what I did, try to ask the questions again as best I could. But he had rattled through them all and it was kind of embarrassing. Wow. Scary. Yeah. Wow. That's funny. <laughs> I, did, I did have the Haitian president shout at me once, which was one of my memorable experiences. I was only about 25 or 26 and having the prime minister of a country shouting you down the phone for something when you'd done absolutely nothing wrong. His people had tested a, how would they call it, a trial balloon on me and they'd leaked something to me and I had written the story and then, but without telling him. <laughs> and when he found out, he got on the phone and said, how can you be writing this? What are you doing? Why are you telling this lies shouting at me? And I wanted to say, it was your people who told me. <laughs> and that was a bit scary for a young lad. Yeah, yeah. Well... At least that's not so embarrassing, getting yelled at for a fine enough reason you hadn't done anything wrong. Yeah. I guess the next question is kind of related. Uh, the next one's like, uh, pinch me, I can't believe this is my life sort of moment. So it could be the coolest, weirdest, most surreal, strangest, positive or negative, but kind of these, I can't believe my work has put me in this situation sort of moment. Yeah, I mean... That's essentially the last 30 years for me. Having left school at 16 and not going to university and went to Latin America just to travel and then actually getting into journalism and doing something that I love so much. Every day was that kind of experience to me. I couldn't believe how lucky I was. There were moments that I remember. I remember being in Haiti once, not long after the US had come in. We were, myself and Rick Bragg from the New York Times and Philippe Diedrich, we, the photographer, we were in a car. We were driving through a town and all the peasants in the town, because we were in a big car, a 4x4, four four, you needed a 4x4 four four to get anywhere in Haiti because the roads were so bad. <laughs> but they thought that we were part of the U.S. military and they uh -huh. were all celebrating. The U they loved the U.S. military because the U.S. military was bringing back Aristide, who they had voted for. And they lined the streets of the town <laughs> to cheer us and wave us and, you know, you know, celebrate us coming through the town. Wow. And we took a minute to kind of work out what was going on, but then we wound down our windows and, you know, we were saluting them royally and waving, giving them the <laughs> royal wave and la laughing at ourselves. There was also another moment in the in the Amazon. I remember, I remember doing a story for the Daily Telegraph magazine and I went to meet a, a remote tribe that had just recently been contacted. And so... It's like a long flight, and then it's like a six-hour drive, and then you're, it takes another hour. You have to walk into the forest, and then you come face-to-face -face with this prehistoric tribe who don't speak any language that anyone has ever understood. <laughs> you know, the linguists the linguist had come in and heard their language, and nobody understood what they were saying, and you were you were face-to-face -face with these these indigenous people. <laughs> and, it's, and I just remember being in the situation and thinking, you know, what the hell? I mean, what am I doing here? <laughs> it was just so outrageous it's me and these there were only six of them left seven of them left and they lived in a hut with you know two cans had been were, were chained inside and and I, no i just remember 
being in this situation and thinking, this is the most incredible experience I'm ever going to have. It was like going back in time. And you just, I mean, since you couldn't communicate, you just observed and wrote based on that? Well, I remember one of the ways of communicating was that they would point at the sun. The, 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 the indigenous people needed help hunting. And the Funai people, the indigenous agency, they had a gun and they would help them to hunt. So they would mime hunting a gun and going, pow, pow. <laughs> that, was to, that was to illustrate that they would come back the next day with a gun and to indicate the time, they would point at the place in the sky where the sun would be. And that's how they communicated. And these, the Funai agents had been there a while. So they had been going backwards and forwards on a regular basis to try and communicate with the, the indigenous people because they had been put in this reservation to protect them because the, the area where, where they made their home was under threat from loggers and from miners. So they had put them in this area and had communicated with them. There was a nurse who would go now and again. So there was some sort of communication, but it was the first time I had met them. And yeah, it was just incredible. I, I remember we walked back. It was about an hour walk through the forest to get from the edge of the reservation to where they were. And I was at the front of the, the front, there was about five or six of us, I was at the front and the photographer was at the very end and the photographer said that one of the indigenous people ran after them and he said he ran through the forest and he tapped the photographer on the back and the photographer said I almost jumped out of my skin because I never heard them coming. So you can imagine running through the forest, you know, dry twigs, stones, everything, bark. And he said and this indigenous guy came up behind me, I had no idea he was there. And then he took his picture. There's a great picture in the magazine. And it was like this indigenous guy knew he had his picture was being taken. He was he stood there, he, he posed for the picture, hmm. which I, I, I thought was kind of really unusual. Yeah. I don't know if it's universal. I mean, they say that blind people, when they're celebrating, they throw their hands in the air. They've obviously never seen people throw their hands in the air. It's just something you do. Huh. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of to compare it with. That when when people are looking at you, you kind of pause because you know people are looking at you. I don't know. Interesting. Wow. Where was it exactly? I'm just curious. Uh, Rondonia. Rondonia. Okay. Yeah. I think that just leaves the final two questions. So next is what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? I I will read anything about process. Robert Carroll's book, Working, that came out a couple of years ago. That was of huge interest to me. A lot of these podcasts that I've mentioned, you know, always take notes. There's a few others. There's long form. There's the creative non-fiction podcast. There's quite a few of them where people talk about process. And it's always never enough for me. People will say, I eventually found this guy. And I always want to know, but how did you find this guy? I'm really interested in the nuts and bolts of how to find people and how to get people to talk. So any of that kind of stuff interests me. Process is something that some occasionally, it comes up in this podcast from time to time, more by accident than anything. It's often hard to know what questions to ask to elicit those really nitty gritty answers without like just getting huge answers with a little nugget inside. So, I mean, yeah, I would be curious to check out that, that book. Work, is it about journalistic work in it's, particular? It's, yeah, you know Robert Caro, right? Who did the biographies of Robert Moses and LBJ. Okay. You know, the five-volume, unfinished five-volume biography of LBJ. And he's kind of celebrated as the world's greatest biographer because he's so detailed. And he has a book called Working, and it's about how he works, essentially. 
but there, you know, there's still not enough detail for me. I had one podcast where the, I think the author was Howard Bryant, and he and he told the story about how he was doing a biography, I think, of Bo Jackson, baseball player and American football player, and he said that he went through the guy's high school yearbooks and found everybody and called every found phone numbers for everybody <laughs> in the high school yearbook and called them all to see if they could remember anything about their school friend, which I thought was you know an amazing way to go about things the detail those little things can end up being useful and like stuff you know that's sometimes so basic i mean this was already a few years ago one of the early podcasts but somebody talking about like interview tactics and like how sometimes you just should you should just say nothing and like leave the silence to make it awkward to force the person to say something I forget what the advice was, but if the interview is going bad, there were two tactics. One was that, and so that stuck with me. Even the real thing that I would like to know, or I would pay for somebody to tell me, is how to deal properly, with, how to get past assessorias de imprensa, you know, the, the the PR people around folks, because it's one of the reasons I'm so disillusioned with journalism. It's just so hard to get people to talk. Not because they don't want to talk. I think if you actually called the person and said, well, you talk, they'd say yes. But you, you can't get to them any longer because they have these people. You want to talk to the CEO of a company, for example. First of all, you have to find the PR company that represents the company. And then you have to find the person inside the PR company that represents the company. And then you have to get in touch with them. And then they'll say, why do you want to interview? What are your questions? And then you have to explain it all. And then they have to take it to the person. Then the person has to come back to them. And then they have to come back to you. And at any point in this process, it, you know, it can break down and it can take weeks. Yeah. And mostly yeah. it does take weeks. And the job of the press person is not to get the CEA to talk. It's, it's not to get the CEA to talk <laughs> right. because it will make life more difficult for them if the CEO says something. I just find it so, 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 so difficult. I mean, even this past week, there was... Somebody had passed me the WhatsApp of somebody for a story that, I mean, I, I was like, oh, maybe I'll look into this if it's easy. You know, it's not a must-do thing. But, you know, I contact the guy and he says, oh, do me a favor, contact the assessoria de imprensa. And I'm like, okay, forget about it. I'm not, I'm just not even going to bother with this story. It wasn't that important. Yeah. But uh, it's, uh, and other times it's just, you know, the person's way of telling you to fuck off like the other thing yeah that's true the, the other thing is though that in the past you could talk to people on the phone and now even accessories the imprensa won't talk to you on the phone they want whatsapp so you cannot create any kind of relationship when you talk to somebody it's, you create a, a relationship where it's just a whatsapp it's so much easier to be misunderstood you can't really give them the depth of knowledge you can't explain there's no nuance to it and they often will misinterpret what you're saying or will take one part of what you're saying and use it as an excuse not to do it i had I had this case last week and i said i want to talk to this guy and the person said what's it about and i said it's about this it's about that you know it's from a book and they come back to me and say yeah it's, this is a really important book so we have to check with our lawyers <laughs> and really there's absolutely no need to check with lawyers you know, yeah. all they do, if they don't, and I said to them, listen, try and say this without, you know, offending them. You're like, you're overthinking this. If he doesn't want to answer the question, he just says, next question. 
Yeah, yeah. But I think it's always just a way to stop people talking. Yeah, no, I would agree, yeah. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would do something where I could make an impact, which is a very broad statement. Maybe something in human rights. I like what I do. I find that interesting. I have a friend who lives in Mexico who's paid by lawyers when somebody is on death row, they go and they investigate the life of the person who's on death row to find out if there's any mitigating factors that might help them get the guy off death row. And I thought that was a fascinating job. It's kind of journalism, but it's research and it's for a good cause. That's the kind of thing I would like to do. Yeah, that sounds very interesting and still, yeah, able to investigate, but just for a a different... I presume you're not going to let me be like king of Brazil. (laughs) <laughs> uh, that's not a job that exists. I mean, I guess you could say president of Brazil. No, but. Could it be king? Of, could it be king of Commonwealth? You know, <laughs> you know I could have, I could have a field day if I did that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's the last question. So I'll just wrap up by saying thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Andrew. Thanks for the invite. It's been a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Andrew Downey, a freelance journalist and author. I'll post links to some of the things Andrew talked about in the podcast description and on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at, at @foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com/foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called "Love Chances" by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and in our show page. Please look for the next episode in October. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Thank you.